0: You may be seated. Good morning to you. It's uh, good to be back with you. Uh, We're going to return to the book of Acts this morning. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to join me there uh, in Acts chapter 21. Um, Acts 21 is where we will begin uh, into Acts 22 as well. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to uh, use one of the black Bibles in front of you that we have provided Uh, for you. If you need help um, finding the passage, the page is 876 in those Bibles. Um, Once again, Acts chapter 21. If you're visiting with us and uh, or just newer to FAC and we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. uh, I'm always eager to uh, meet new people. And so please uh, don't be shy after service. Feel free to come up and introduce yourself. It would be a blessing to me. Um, to meet if we haven't had a chance yet. Um, this morning, our study is going to start in verse 37, um, but I want, for the sake of context, I want to begin reading from verse 31 uh, so that you kind of understand what's happening in the story here. Uh, so once again, we're going to begin reading from Acts 21 verse 31, and we're going to read until verse 16 of Acts 22, and then we'll pray. Um, and begin our time together, I do invite you to follow along as I read. Uh, here in verse 31, the hymn the, the that it's referring to is Paul. Uh, just so you know, Paul is the object, uh, the, the character here that it's referring to in verse 31. Let's read it together. And as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered him, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Let's pray with me. Heavenly Father, as David in the Psalms writes, we declare how majestic is your name in all the earth, for you have set your glory above the heavens. And now as we approach your word, would we with confidence see you and hear your voice and know your will as you have revealed it to us. By your Holy Spirit, would we approach our time this morning with the humility necessary to learn from you and be conformed into Christ's image. For it's in Jesus' glorious name that we pray. Amen. Just about two weeks ago, um, the very first images that were taken by the James Webb Telescope were released to the public. And it has the astronomy community just absolutely ecstatic. Uh, the, the, The telescope, which was launched into space back in December, has the capability of taking pictures of objects 13 billion light years away. Uh, and it has advanced infrared technology, which allows it to take pictures of the outer reaches of the universe in more detail than we have ever seen before. And it is just remarkable. Um, One astronomer was quoted in an article that um, I had read this past week saying that we know these galaxies pretty well, but seeing these images with James Webb is like putting glasses on. Things we couldn't see before now are just crystal clear. And it's been really overwhelming. These images, if you've seen them, are just quite stunning. And if you haven't had the chance to see them yet, I wanted to show you this morning, just one of uh, probably my favorite one uh, that was released. This is a real picture. Of, uh, of a galaxy. It's a small portion of what's known as the Carina Nebula. Um, astronomers call it the cosmic cliffs. Uh, and, and I was so excited about this picture and, and, and seeing it, I showed my kids the image this past week. And my daughter said, dad, that looks like a painting. And it does, doesn't it? Right? And we know that behind any painting. Behind any masterpiece there is one whom the masterpiece points to. There is a master artist who elegantly guides the strokes of a brush through the cosmos. An image like this really gives force, does it not, to a verse like Psalm nineteen one that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The psalmist didn't have that image when he wrote those words. And we do, right? To say that creation bears testimony to God, although true, I would say is a massive understatement. Because when we see pictures like this, the celestial bodies are screaming in our faces, attempting to draw our attention to the one greater than all things. And that is the only reason that they're there, for no other reason but for God to show off his power and his might and his glory. Boy, wouldn't this all be a waste if it didn't purposefully point to someone, a person beyond. This concept of God showing us his glory, showing himself to us, is the very thing which marked Paul's ministry. And it gave him everything that he needed in the world to fulfill God's calling on his life. All of Paul's motivation was wrapped up and founded on the fact that God can be seen and God can be heard and God can be known that God has revealed himself to us, both generally through creation and specifically through Jesus Christ. This is Paul's defense in our passage today as his ministry and his work come up against a strong adversary. uh, Just to remind you where we are in the story, Paul was in the temple in Jerusalem, and due to some assumptions and uh, fabrications from the people, Paul quickly became the target and the ire of a mob who thought that Paul was there to uh, defile the temple and speak out against Judaism, which wasn't the case. Uh, but as a result, they attempted to kill Paul. And ironically, he's saved by a Roman tribune by being put under arrest. Uh, the, the Roman tribune, is like a military official. And the tribune's job was to keep the peace. And so his solution is to remove Paul from the situation because he knows this crowd will not settle down until Paul is, is hauled away, is removed from their presence. Uh, and then the passage takes us to the scene right outside of the barracks when Paul politely asks the tribune in Greek, may I say something to you? Do I have permission to speak? Now, the tribune is surprised not because Paul speaks or even what he has to say, uh, but the tribune is surprised because Paul knows Greek, right? What this tells the tribune is that Paul may not be from around here because Greek was primarily a foreign language in those parts in, in Jerusalem. Now, if you recall back in verses 33 and 34, which we read this morning, when the tribune inquired about who Paul was, In the midst of the riot, he couldn't get a straight answer because of the chaos and because of the confusion. So the Tribune is still trying to figure out who Paul is and why he has caused such an uproar among the people. And the fact that Paul spoke Greek combined with the fact that he was a catalyst for such an uproar actually reinforces a suspicion that the Tribune has uh, about Paul. And it leads the Tribune to suggest that Paul is actually this political troublemaker who showed up in Jerusalem just a few years prior. The Tribune asks Paul, Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? The Tribune's talking about actually a real moment with this real man who tried to lead a real revolt. We have more details about this particular Egyptian thanks to uh, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. Uh, And Josephus in his works tells us that in 54 AD, there was this Egyptian who, who was a false prophet. He claimed to be a prophet of God and he had recruited thousands of men convincing them that they could overthrow Jerusalem. And he promised that the walls of Jerusalem would come crumbling down. And this Egyptian man gathered his army of men on the Mount of Olives, which was just east of Jerusalem. And the Romans, who occupied Jerusalem at the time, preemptively attacked And uh, Josephus tells us that the Romans killed 400 of these men and then they took 200 alive as prisoners and then the rest scattered. And among those who scattered was this Egyptian man who led the revolt. The Egyptian man fled and he was never seen again. And so that gives us an understanding about who they think they're dealing with, with Paul. The tribune thinks this might be the man. Even the word in the text used for assassins shows us the seriousness of the issue. The, the term assassins here literally means dagger men. It was men who carried daggers uh, with intent to kill. And so the tribune thinks that Paul is a terrorist who, who has come to finish what he started a couple of years back, who has come to finish this insurrection. They think he's here to overthrow the government. And so naturally, Paul wants to diffuse the situation. He wants to make sure they know I'm not here to overthrow the government. He tells the tribune, No, in fact, I, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. At Tarsus, it was a prominent city in Asia Minor, and oftentimes in that culture, your own reputation and your own honor and your own dignity were actually tied to the reputation and honor and dignity of your hometown. And so Paul is using his city of origin to try and gain an audience with the tribune and with the people to let him speak to the people to try and diffuse the situation so that they would know that he is not a a, a violent man, that he is not a political risk. And so surprisingly enough, the tribune lets Paul speak. And so Paul motions to the crowd, probably doing something like like this in order to calm them down. And then it's interesting because he begins speaking to them now in Hebrew. And he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Hear the defense. Um, So Paul's speech here throughout the rest of the passage is what we would call a defense. It's a very specific kind of speech. Everything that Paul says is designed to make a case for his ministry and why he does what he does. And it's meant to also explain and, and defend his own orthodoxy as a Jew and how even his ministry and his calling actually began with Jewish roots, that he's not here to overthrow J- Judaism, uh, but rather actually expand on it. Now, Paul knows that one of the golden rules of communication is to know your audience, to, to meet your audience right where they are. And uh, Paul knows his audience well, and so he opens his defense He doesn't come out firing with all of these points to defend himself. No, he begins actually by endearing himself to the Jewish audience. He's meeting them right where they are, and he does this in three ways. First, he endears himself to them by speaking in a Hebrew dialect, most likely Aramaic. And in the text, it says that when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, Uh, they became even more quiet because while Greek was a foreign language in those parts, this dialect that Paul speaks is actually their native language and it helps pacify the crowd. Him speaking in their native tongue um, would have immediately put them at ease that he may not be who we think he is. He may not be the terrorist that uh, we had assumed that he was and so as a result, this actually... The the crowd becomes more quiet. That's the first way he endears himself to them, speaking their own language. Second, he endears himself to them by telling them about his upbringing. Paul essentially says, I am a Jew, and yes, I I was born in a foreign city in Tarsus, um, but I was actually brought up in this city. This is my old stomping grounds, right? I, I was raised in Jerusalem. I grew up in Jerusalem, and as a part of my upbringing here in Jerusalem, I was actually educated, he tells the crowd, uh, by Gamaliel. Uh, When we met Gamaliel, we already have met him actually back in Acts chapter 5. And there we learned that Gamaliel was one of the leading members of the Sanhedrin and that he was respected by all the people. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was sort of the the supreme court of ancient Israel. It was the highest governing body in terms of of the law of Moses. Uh, And for Paul to say that I sat at the feet of Gamaliel would be like if one of us said that I was personally mentored and educated one-on-one by a supreme court justice. From other sources, we learn that Gamaliel was arguably the most significant and influential teacher in Judaism in the first century. And so everybody listening to Paul right now would know who Gamaliel was. And Paul had the great privilege of sitting under his teaching. This would have had an impact on the Jewish crowd listening. This would have endeared Paul to the crowd. And then finally, Paul endears himself to them by comparing his own zealous nature for God to theirs. It's fascinating in the passage because the crowd just tried to kill Paul. Yet it almost seems as though Paul offers up a compliment to them. He recognizes their motivation and their actions is due to their zeal for God. They have such an enthusiasm towards God. They have such a sincerity that they can't stand it if someone were to offend God or speak out against God. And Paul sort of sympathizes with that. He says, I understand why you tried to kill me because frankly, I'm zealous for God too. And I would do the same thing if I were in your shoes. In fact, Paul goes on to say, I was in your shoes, and I did the exact same thing that you are doing now. I share in my zeal that you have for God, and I can prove it. Paul explains, I was so zealous for God that I actually persecuted the way. I persecuted the way of Christianity. I persecuted everyone who was a Christian because I thought that they stood up against the God of Israel. Right, if, if you're familiar with Paul's story, Paul hunted believers down like a predator and had them put to death. But Paul essentially says, what you're doing to me today is no different than what I used to do. And if you have any doubt that that's what I was like. There's still a whole council of Jewish elders around and even the high priest himself who will tell you how cutthroat I I, I was. Don't take my word for it, Paul basically says. Go and ask them. Go and ask them and they'll tell you how they actually gave me letters, signed documents of extradition, which granted me the authority to go to Damascus, the city of Damascus on their behalf, to bring back any Christians in chains so that they could be punished. This tells us, right, how Jewish Paul was. The fact that Paul was educated by Gamaliel and had authority bestowed on him with official documentation by the Jewish council and the high priest shows that Paul rubbed shoulders with some of the most prominent Jewish figures of the day. Paul tells the crowd, that is how Jewish I am. I am one of you but then something happened to me that you need to know about. And Paul strategically uses his own personal testimony as a Jewish zealot to open a door for him to describe how he met Jesus. Once again, Paul was so jealous as a Jew Jew, that he made his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And beginning in verse 6, Paul recounts what happened On his way there, Uh, as he was traveling around uh, midday, around noon, there was a great light from heaven, and it was so bright and so powerful that it knocked him to the ground. Uh, At that point, he had heard a voice address him as Saul, which was Paul's uh, Hebrew name. Uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul answered, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then then as the story continues, verse 9 is interesting because Paul mentions um, that he had travel companions and that those traveling with him saw the light but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And so what we pick out from this is that they saw something and they even heard something even though they couldn't comprehend what they were seeing and hearing. And down in verse 11, we actually come to find that the, the, the light was so powerful and so bright that Paul was literally blinded by it and needed to be led by these men. These details in the story are important. The detail about his blindness, And the fact that the other men saw something and heard something is important and significant because it shows us that this experience that Paul had was not an internal experience. This was not something that he experienced on the inside, but rather it was a verifiable external experience. It was something that happened outside of him. We know that Paul is a changed man after this encounter with Jesus. It's obvious. And because there were other witnesses, we know that Paul does not experience here a lapse of consciousness. Right? This is not a vision. This is not some kind of mental breakdown for Paul. Paul. This was not some sort of elaborate dream. This was not merely a psychological experience for Paul. No, he literally and physically came face to face with the risen Jesus. He literally heard the audible voice of Jesus. It was not a lapse of consciousness. It was also not a check in conscience It's not as if Paul was on his way to Damascus and suddenly decided to think his life over. It's not as if he was writing and thinking about all the terrible things that he had ever done and decided that he needed to turn over a new leaf and become a good person. It's not as if he was just all of a sudden overwhelmed by this insurmountable guilt for his actions and decided, I need to start making wiser choices with my life. I need to start making, doing good things. Because in all reality, Paul, as a Jewish zealot, thought that he was a good person, that this was the good thing to do. Paul operated under the assumption and the pretense that his actions did honor God, that persecuting Christians was the good thing to do. Had this event not happened, I guarantee you that Paul would have continued to march right into Damascus with intent to harm believers. You see, Paul was transformed, but there was nothing internal in Paul that caused that shift, not because of a lapse of consciousness, not because of a check in conscience, but because he met Jesus and because he was specifically offered Jesus's grace. Paul was immersed in Jesus's grace because consider how these events play out. Right, Jesus appears to Paul and it is so powerful that it blinds him and it knocks him to the ground. Right, to this point, once again, Paul had led followers of Jesus to their death. And Jesus tells Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Or, or in other words, why why are you hurting me? Why are you against me? I feel the sting of your persecution as you have struck my children. I have felt that struck. You in turn have struck me as you attack my children. You are actually in turn attacking me. Why are you persecuting me? It's very important to understand that Jesus confronts Paul here as his enemy. Paul, you are my enemy. You are persecuting me. And he blinds Paul and he knocks Paul off his feet. Jesus has Paul backed into a corner. How vulnerable can you get here if you're Paul? Blind and off of your feet. Paul was dead to rights and at the mercy of Jesus in this moment. And truthfully, Paul was always at Jesus' mercy. But this is the first time that Paul himself realizes it. Because Jesus could have struck Paul dead right then and there. But he doesn't. He offers him grace. You see, it was Jesus' grace extended to Paul that changed his life. And as a result in verse 10, Paul asks Jesus another question, what shall I do, Lord? And Jesus answers, Go ahead and go into Damascus, this time not as an enemy, but as a friend, and await further instruction, I'll tell you, when you get there. This is how Paul's conversion plays out. It's the second time we've actually come across this story in the book of Acts. The the first time was Acts chapter 9. The account is very similar to the account in Acts 9, but there are some differences And the distinctions between the two accounts are subtle, but also significant. Uh, We have to remember that although two accounts share the same story, they are told from a different perspective to a different audience for a different purpose. Hence the subtle adjustments that you would see in the story if you compared them side by side. In Acts 9, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, actually narrates the story Um, just from his own perspective as he's gathered uh, the details of the story. And it's meant to merely recount the events that led to Paul's conversion. It's just meant to generally tell a general audience what happened to Paul, why he was a changed man. In this chapter, Paul is actually the one talking. And so he is the one who narrates the story. And it's used as a part of a defense of his calling and his ministry, specifically to a Jewish audience who are in the dark. And as a result, this influences how and why Paul tells the story slightly differently than Luke in Acts chapter nine. Now the accounts don't contradict each other, but because Paul knows his audience, Paul knows his context, he knows who he's talking about, he knows where they all are, Paul chooses to emphasize or illuminate different themes. And one of the themes that he illuminates here in this account is illumination. The Jews are dark, are in the dark in their understanding. So Paul emphasizes this theme of light in the story. In Acts chapter 9, he mentions the light, but it's only mentioned once. But here in this account, it's actually mentioned three times and much is made of it. And in this account, we learn for the first time um, that the time of day was noon, right? It's it's the time of day when the sun shines the brightest. Yet this heavenly light was so bright that it actually overpowered the sun. It outshined the sun uh, in its most concentrated time of day. The light of Jesus overpowered the powerful light of the sun. And so you may be asking, what, why is the difference in the accounts? Why is light emphasized in this story? Well, once again, let me remind you that Paul had a Jewish audience. And the light, uh, the concept of light was significant in Judaism. This would not be lost on them. In the Jewish tradition, in the Old Testaments, light represented God. It represented the knowledge of God. It represented uh, the wisdom of his character and the wisdom of his word. It represented the power of understanding spiritual truth and the power of understanding moral truth. It represented revelation. Right? When you turn on a light in a dark room, what are you doing but illuminating the room so that you can reveal what is in the room? Illumination equals revelation. And this concept of revelation is further confirmed as Paul arrives in the city of Damascus in verses 12 through 16 we read about a well-respected Jewish man who is also a Christ follower named Ananias. He comes to Paul and he says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, Paul received his sight. This is a physical representation of what has happened to Paul spiritually as a result of meeting Jesus. He was spiritually blind and now he spiritually sees. And then don't miss this in verse 14. God expresses through Ananias his call on Paul's life and take notice what it is specifically said. Ananias says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. You, for you, will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. This verse is critical in our understanding of Paul's witness and even critical in our understanding of our own witness if you are a believer in this room. Right? First, we must understand that God is an observable God. You can know the will of God, you can know. God's desires and his purposes. You can see the righteous one. You can see God in the person of Jesus. There were hundreds of witnesses in the first century who literally saw the risen Jesus. And you can hear God's voice. His word that we study week in and week out is his voice. You can hear God. The the entirety of the Bible is the story about how the observable God has revealed himself to us and how we can intimately know him. God, by his very nature, is observable. And just as important is that he has been observed. He's been observed. That's what Ananias is talking about here. Uh, In Ananias' instruction in verse 15, Paul's calling, his witness, is permanently tied to the observed God. What does he say? For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. What you have seen and heard. Paul is a witness. What is a witness? It's someone who has observed an event and recounts it to somebody else, tells them about it. But notice what he is not a witness to in this verse, right? Paul is not a witness necessarily to a worldview. He is not a witness here to a framework of moral ideas. He is not a witness to his own opinions. He is not a witness to his preferences or his desires. He is not a witness to a hobby horse. He is not even a witness here to a belief system. No, he is called to be a witness to what? To what he has seen and what he has heard. Our witness is to the objective revelation of God. The fact that God has shown himself and desires for the world to open their eyes and see him as well. Our witness is founded in the person of Jesus, in the risen Christ, that he was dead, and he, then he overcame death at his resurrection. And Paul saw and heard the risen Jesus. And all of those other things that I mentioned, beliefs, worldviews, Moral standards, they come after we see the risen Jesus. Those are developed later, but first we see and hear Jesus. I think sometimes in our own witness, if you're a believer in this room, our own witness to our friends and family, to our loved ones, we often lead with the wrong thing. Please know in your interaction with unbelievers that we aren't first primarily telling people how to act or how to think, or how to view the world. Those things will come, but that is not what we lead with. No, we ought to lead by telling people what has happened. That we know a man named Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and he conquered death. And the truth of what happened, an event in history, is what causes one to believe and be transformed. Now, if you are an unbeliever in this room and you are not convinced, please know that the observable God demands a response. You you can't just leave that there. You can't just say, here is God, here is Christ, and then leave it there. It demands a response. In verse 16, Ananias tells Paul, and now why do you wait? In other words, he's saying, Paul, you've seen and you've heard God, you've met him, and what are you still doing sitting down? Get up. Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Similar to Paul's restoration of sight, uh, merely representing his spiritual illumination, baptism here represents how Paul has been spiritually washed of his sin in, in meeting Jesus and accepting his grace. The only way one's sins can be washed away is by calling on Jesus' name, right? Having seen, having observed Jesus, we call on his name. Revelation and response. You you may not have noticed, but we saw shades of this concept on the road to Damascus. Two powerful questions were posed by Paul. Uh, On the road to Damascus, Jesus is the one who takes the initiative, to to go to Paul, to meet him where he is. He's the one that takes initiative to reveal himself in powerful array to his enemy, Paul. And Paul asks the question, who are you? Revelation, who are you? I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am Jesus. And then only after observing Jesus, Paul asks the question, What shall I do? Response. These questions can uh, still and should be posed by us today. When hearing about Jesus, even this very moment, it's okay for you to sit there and ask the question, who are you? Who are you? Show yourself to me. Who are you? I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am who I say I am and I have revealed myself to you so that you may know who I am, so that you may have a deep, intimate relationship and knowledge of the one who lovingly created you for his glory. I am the one, Jesus says, who has come to seek and save the lost, to save you from your own sin which has separated you from my Father. And then as a result of Seeing Jesus, it's okay to ask the question, what then shall I do? And the answer is to call on his name. That, that is the only appropriate response to, to the, that revelation demands. Call on his name. You'll notice here, the, the, the response is not, I need to be a better person. The response is not, boy, I better get my act together and I should come to church more often. I should turn over a new leaf. I should just try to be better. No, the response is call on the name of Jesus to wash you from your sin. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but Romans 10 offers a really good side-by-side commentary of this story. I would encourage you guys to go read and study it on your own. In that chapter, however, Paul explains that zeal without knowledge is useless. And even knowledge, revelation, doesn't get you all the way there. Paul writes, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's talking about revelation. You know the word. You've seen God. And then he goes on to say, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. response. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. The two go hand in hand. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is the response. And what we learn here is that sincerity is not enough. Maybe because God has revealed himself. There's not a single living creature in all of history without evidence of God, without the revelation of God in some form or manner. All have seen him, all will see him, but not all have called on Jesus's name to rescue them from their sins. Right, if I'm in a burning building, the knowledge that I have, that a fireman has the ability and the resources to save me won't do me much good the only way a fireman will save me is if I call on him to save me. You see, I am concerned that there are many people within our midst today who claim to know Jesus, perhaps have come to church their entire life and they know a lot about him, but they've never actually called on him for salvation. And there's a fine line between knowing about Jesus and actually calling on his name to save. And the difference between the two has eternal ramifications. Your zeal, your sincerity, your morals, even your knowledge are all in vain if you have not called on his name. And so before you leave today, can you in good conscience say that I have literally called on Jesus to save me from my own sin that has separated me from God? If I prayed to God, And said, Lord, I am a wretched sinner that needs to be washed of my sin. And I know that Jesus is the only one who can do it through his death and resurrection. Lord, I believe what you have said about yourself, how you have revealed yourself to me. And I trust that you will save me purely by your grace, not anything that I have done, that you will save me by your grace in Christ alone. If you have yet to do that in your life, let today be the day that you call on his name. Would you pray with me? And Lord, the heavens declare your glory. How can we not see beyond um, this world that you you have created and see you? Lord, there's not a single person in this room who has not seen you uh, reveal yourself generally through creation, And as a result of our study, they can't walk out saying that they don't know about Jesus and who he is and what he has come to do. And so now, Father, I ask by the power of your spirit that you would bring response from people, that your grace extended to them, your love extended to them would prompt the response that somebody here this morning would call on Jesus for salvation, to be washed of their sins. For this we praise you, Lord, for we know that there's nothing in ourselves internally that can bring us back into a proper relationship with you, Father, but it is completely your action and what you have done in your created order. And for that we give you all the glory and praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.